0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share with you a session from the d 2018 conference on EHR-enabled eSource to disrupt clinical trials. This presentation from Pfizer's Rob Goodwin and Amy Nordo, who at the time was with Duke Clinical, demonstrate the collaboration between the two organizations to harness the power of eSource across companies and medical centers. And today, Amy has joined Pfizer actually full-time. So when you have a chance, check out the keynotes for DFARm 2019, which is taking place September 17th and 18th in Boston. d is an innovation event specializing in clinical trials. Enjoy the podcast.
1: For this conversation here, and it's a conversation really, um, because we're after lunch, I'm sort of the appetizer, and really Amy's the main course. And, you know, I'm going to take you through the business problem and where we are. The nice thing what we're going to talk about is it's not a white paper. Um, It's not just a thought. We're actually working on how we're going to solve the problem, so putting it into production. And there's a lot of things that we're doing here. Um, You probably have all seen pictures like this around some of the areas of the problems that we're trying to solve. It's not unique, and I think what we're going to talk about is we don't want to be unique. Whatever we can do, we want to share. We don't want it to be just for us. There really is no competitive advantage on this. But we have to solve the problem and we really do think that we can do it now. You know, we heard a great discussion this morning about Estonia, bless you. Uh, <laughs> we heard this great discussion this morning about Estonia, and you think, well, if a country can do it, why can't we? Um, and there's really no reason why we can't, and I think it's just an inertia that we have, or have had, but I'm starting to see that move. So, you know, we're talking about data, really, and really that value chain of data, and if we're gonna make it simple to participate in clinical research, how can we make it easier for those that really are at the forefront sitting with the patients to do that. So you've probably seen pictures like this as well, this continue care uh, continuum. And we've, you know, last night at uh, cocktail hour, we are talking about research as a care option. Well, that kind of feeds into all of this because patients just don't come in for a clinical trial at that one point, right? They're through the whole life cycle of their care, whether they're, you know, in the community, in an acute care situation or when they leave, right, in rehab. But that data is collected all the way through that value chain. Now, I'm going to speak about the U.S. only for one moment, because in the experiments that we're doing, they're not just U.S. focused. What we're talking here today is going to be about the U.S., but we are looking at experiments and doing experiments in Japan today, in China, and we're looking at other areas of the world. Actually, Estonia seems like a great place to go do an experiment now, because Every country is a little different, and that's part of the reason why you have to do these experiments. There is not one thing that I can think of right now that's going to solve the problem for each one of the institutions, for each one of the countries, local language, local regulations, all those things that happen. But when you look at this uh, care continuum, what you realize is that it's very difficult if data is being captured in all these different systems and not integrated. Nice thing, again, just speaking about the U.S. for a minute, if you look at the IDN, so the Integrated Delivery Networks, well, there's an opportunity because one of the issues we have is scalability, right? There's no way we can go to each institution and gear it just for that institution, and then as that system change, go back and do it again. There, I mean, you could. It would just be very difficult to do that. But with the changes with the IDNs where you're starting to see them really broadly taking more hospitals and institutions under their wing, you have a real opportunity for influence. You have a real opportunity to get in there and actually set something up that can be reusable across that value chain you've probably seen pictures like this as well. Um, And this is one of my favorite. Um, Because it's not just about what we're going to talk today about getting data directly from uh, a health system and bring it into, well, I'm going to call it the interim in EDC. Because longer term, as I I mentioned, we have a number of experiments. Some we're trying to pull directly, just directly from those systems into our database. And we're trying to do that in multiple areas of the world. But there's also the opportunity of when you pull that information how does a physician or a healthcare provider view that data? Because they're not used to viewing data in clinical trials just plainly from an EMR. So we think of just pulling the data, but we are also very structured in our clinical trials. So there is a role today for EDC, at least in an interim, as I see it, to be able to structure that information, but longer term, it's probably more of a viewer. There's probably better tools out there or those tools will adapt. But in this picture, if, seeing, like, if you think about the middle piece there, the data in the middle, and you think more broadly, we're probably all using data to help us with protocol development. We're probably all using data to help us find sites and patients. We're all probably all using data to think about how we're monitoring sites. But we're not all doing it at full scale. Some are, some aren't. Why aren't we? So everything that we're gonna talk about today is how do you get it to scale. If you look on the left-hand side, Again, we're probably all doing experiments or what we think to be moving in a direction where we have patients that are totally connected, right, Mm -hmm. using handheld devices, wearables, et cetera. But how many in this room are doing it at scale with all of their trials? Probably not. And that's also the opportunity that we have when we think about virtual trials. So if we're going to get there, we do have to do things at scale. Now, scale for each person means something different, right? So if you're a smaller company and you're running two or three trials... That may be scale, and maybe you're doing it. You know, in a large organization, if you're running 500 trials a year, how do you do that? How do you kind of take that change and bring it all the way through? This morning, the gentleman from Estonia said something which is, it's not about the line of code. And I think he's right, because it is an inertia change in terms of um, getting people to think a little differently, not just in a sponsor company, but also at the research site, also with the patient, also at regulators. So the left-hand side patients, you know, thinking about if we can get this connected patient, how could we be more flexible, whether they'd be at home or whether they're in a doctor's office, wouldn't matter. But what we're often forgetting about is that right-hand side, which is the researcher. What tools are we giving them? I'm very surprised when I talk with sites and they tell me that when they're looking for patients, they're actually manually going through their EMR system and identifying patients. They don't always have the IT department or the tools. At Pfizer, I'm lucky. We have great IT partners, right? So when we have a business problem, everybody comes to the table to go solve that problem. But not every institution has that type of support. So if you're going to make this scale, how can you start providing that? I mean, if you think about how we could change a little differently, if you're working in a system like an IDN in the U.S., could you provide support resources to help find patients without breaking any kind of privacy, right? Could you have uh, support systems to help with... The coordinators, because they have to get used to the technology. What about when the patient leaves? They sort of need a help desk. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I celebrated 20 years at Pfizer last Thursday. So I'm kind of an old cat, right? So if you put devices on me, I need help, right? You know, if my kids aren't around, I need somebody to call to say, what, how do I get this to work again, right? So if you think about you're a patient, right? Now, you know, the millennial generation would probably be no problem, right? They'll probably run the help desk. But somebody like me, I need somebody to call. <laughs> so we have to think about, in all of this, how we're we going to support the end user. And that end user looks very different, right? I mean, it's so interesting to see. Um, uh, I'll be, I, I work in New York. And so I'll see a lot of people, even older than me, walking around with the earbuds in and the phone and walking through the street just like every other kid. And I would never expect that. Both my parents have passed away. But I wonder if my mom and dad now would be doing that. Right? Would they have an iPhone? And would they be listening to Lawrence Welk or whatever they listen to right? But you know, with their earbuds in? So I think the future is in front of us. I think it's, it makes no sense to look backwards. At this point, I think every one of the problems that we have are solvable. It's just a matter of probably everybody in this room and more broadly sharing and doing it. Like I said, we can't think about if we do this. And be honest, at Pfizer, we're going to do it. We have no choice. Um, I have a boss who didn't come from development. So his question all the time is, why does it take so long? Why is it so slow? And he's not asking because he's being mean. He's asking because he really just doesn't understand why does it take so long? Why does it have to be like this? Um, I get a great opportunity to bring in a lot of young CEOs, like 27-year-old, 30-year-old guys, gals. When they come in, they think about problems so differently. This summer, I had 18 interns who came in. They took some business problems and cranked them out like I've never seen before. And I took a step back and thought, why didn't I think about that? (laughs) Like, why didn't I think that way? You just need some new ideas because they don't see why it didn't work in the past. They don't see all the issues with, you know, why it won't. They just see, how do you make it? It's just a different mindset. So for all of us, we have to start thinking that way. So there is a, if you take a look at this picture here, I think, you know, with that patient in the middle, but how you engage regulators beyond the U.S., right? U.S. FDA is important, but they're not the only ones. And in fact, many others, depending on what division, you know, if you work with in oncology, FDA division is very open to change. But yet, if you're in dermatology, which you would think would be a lot maybe more accepting of change, the history shows it may be not as accepting about some of the, the, the interesting things you wanna do, right? So it is somewhat division specific. So we can help influence that. Payers play a big role in all of this as well. right? so we will talk about a lot of that data. You know, we, nobody really has done a prospective clinical trial yet just from the EMR for a label change. It actually hasn't been done yet. We had the first one that was gonna roll out actually earlier this year um, with a company, so we were pulling the data directly from the EMR, real life, uh, in a breast cancer indication for a true label change. And then we had to deprioritize that study. So that was the first time we went to the FDA, we had the conversation about they were very excited. Even thinking about drug, right, so drug labeling, right, if it's an experimental medicine, needs to come with a special label on it, and Michael Kuh knows that better than anyone else. We had to talk to the FDA about, well, what happens if we use a specialty pharmacy to actually send that directly to the patient? and they were open to it. So often we always say like it can't be done because we don't go ask. But if you ask, you'd be surprised. So this picture here is I think where we are and my boss uses this picture and I thought it really uh, hit home for me. If you think about retail, how much has changed and how quickly, moving from Main Street to malls. You know, it wasn't too long ago where we were all on our phones ordering things on Amazon and now we just asked Alexa to order dog food, right? And it shows up <laughs> the next day. So if it can happen everywhere else, why can't it happen with us? But you see this chain right now where, um, even in the exhibition room, everybody's sort of thinking this way. So if we don't harness it and move it forward, we just need a couple people to take it forward. So Pfizer, as an example, and Amy's gonna talk about what we're trying to do here, we're willing to take it forward and to share it with everyone. And the hope is that someone else is doing another experiment that they would be willing to take forward and share with everyone else, and the next person as well. So then it becomes the collective, and not the individual where we've been operating. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Amy.
2: Well, thank you everybody for letting me join you and talk to you about eSource. It is a passion of mine. Um, So if you catch me out of here, I'll probably talk your ear off about it. it. With any good idea, it never starts with one individual, right, it starts with a group of individuals who have a vision. Um, and that's exactly what has happened with this project specifically. Um, and I think with eSource in general. So it started out with the visionaries and then the FDA started to put into guidelines and then CEtus got involved and they started an eSource stakeholders task force. And that's where I really came into the picture at that time. And then Duke said, well, let's try it. And so at that time there was a standard called Retrieve Form Data Capture. And we started to build out an e-source project that we took live into production and did research on um, using that standard. And we learned something, right? Because we learn more sometimes from our mistakes than from our successes. And um, there's a a joke, wait, I think there's two jokes in standards organization. And one is that um, if you've seen one CCD, you've seen one CCD. And that's what (laughs) the way that we package data when you use this retrieve form data capture standard. Um, at Duke, we have 23 CCDs. None of them are the kitchen sink CCD that I constantly asked for. Um, so uh, to be transparent, I happen to be a co-chair of HL7, and they developed something called the Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, FIRE, if you will. And when I was looking at this and I said, oh, this just can't scale, right? How am I gonna go from institution to institution when we have 23 CCDs? And they probably aren't the same 23 CCDs at any other institution. And then I looked at FIRE and I thought, oh my. And in the South, we like to say, shut the front door. (laughs) This is the answer. Um, And it's nascent, right? It was was a beginning standard at the time that we decided to pivot, but it's come a long way and, and there's a lot of opportunity there. So when we're doing this and we're looking for an end-to-end solution, I've been a critical care nurse, and I've been a clinical research coordinator, and so I get it from my side, right? I get the swivel chair technology. I've been asking, why are we doing this since the, the, you know, late 90s? So, But what I don't understand is the other side of it, right? And so I have to understand, how does that data look to the EDC companies? How does it look to the sponsors? How does it look when it gets over to the FDA, Right? So we needed an end-to-end solution, but in order to get an end-to-end solution, you have to have all the different perspectives in order to be able to do this. So we put together a team, and Pfizer was the first one to come on board and really get this team together. So this is a CDISC, FDA, Pfizer, Duke, and I'll go through the rest of the group in just a second. This is a mess, and I hope you all agree this is a mess. Um, and it is also an oversimplification of the data moving across. But I wanted to make a point that it is a mess. So, if you start on the left hand side with the patient, there is all sorts of data that is available, right? This is not inclusive. Um, and so, it all comes in oftentimes to a clinician or a researcher, and then they have got to send this data out multiple times to multiple different endpoints. For multiple, but the same exact data. So let's take demographics. I'm a patient, I come in, and let's say I have a cardiac disease, and so I'm going to be in a registry for the ACC. Well, somebody has to take that data and get it over to the ACC, so they're going to take probably my uh, birthday at least. Well, then I decide to join a clinical trial. Well, now somebody else is going to take it over. And by the way, I don't have just one cardiac disease. I have multiple cardiac diseases, which means there's probably more than one uh, QI person in the cardiac department that's individually pulling this data. Over and over and over again. It is a huge time and a quality issue for sites itself, right? Um, And then we put it all through somebody that's a data quality person, and then, as I'm understanding, it goes out all to these, all these other areas. Um, and then there's somebody there that's taking a look at it and saying, yes, this works or it doesn't work. Maybe it goes over to CRO. Shameless plug for the DCRI. Sorry, when I made these slides, I worked for Duke. Um, and then it goes over to somebody like uh, Pfizer or and then hopefully on to the FDA. So, you know, I'm a critical care nurse by background, And we are the queens of workarounds, right? We're always looking for, there's got to be a better way than this. And there is a better way than this. So let's talk about that better way. That red line represents what I see as the firewall for the institution. So that the data to the left-hand side should stay proprietary to that institution. um, And then we should have a good way to share it out with our partners. So this is how nurses are wired. I'm not saying that's the emergency department, but um, (laughs) I'm a critical care nurse. So I like those spaghetti wires is what we call it. They drive us crazy because you can't track that back and make sure that I'm giving the right dose through the right line at the right rate, right? So I can't have spaghetti lines if you're in bed with me and you're in a CCU, if you're in my CCU bed. So we have to figure out a better way. And it's the same thing with how we put data across. We have to make sure that that data is going to the right place at the right time we can track it back. So no spaghetti wires. And what I'm talking about is this. This is a reality if you're in a critical care unit. I'm sure you, nobody here wants us to get the wrong line, just like we don't want to get the wrong line of data across when we're working for. So if we look at the bottlenecks, I see, from my perspective, two areas that are a real bottleneck. So let's talk about what we can do for these bottlenecks. I think the two things we can do is starting with the clinicians ourselves. So we collect data and we collect data in variable ways. Um, And Jimmy Chang has done a lot of work around this that we fill out structured reports, but we don't have structured reporting, which it makes a big difference if you wanna share the data across. So I think the first thing that we can do is start working on structured reporting so that the data is collected the same way across sites, and it's collected in a way for also for reuse, right? So that we're not collecting things in a way that can't be used. The second is what I was talking about with fire. So we have to have a way to make this data interoperable. And we already know that there's variabilities at sites around how their you know, systems were integrated, how they put data into the system, what LOINC codes do they use on the back end? There's a lot of pieces to this that make it hard to compile data together, right? We've heard tons of people here talking about how do you compile the data together. And I thought, well, wow, that seemed really complex. So maybe there's an easier way, something that's not as complex of a way to do it. Um, and that's what Fire is meant to do. It's not only meant to send data across for the structural interoperability, if you will, but it's also meant to represent the semantic interoperability, right? So that I'm talking to you about apples and apples and not apples and strawberries, that we're talking about the same exact piece of data that I want. Now in fairness, I told you, fire's pretty nascent right now. And we're working on the research resources, the pieces around what we would need for research. But they're working on it hard and they're working on it fast. And they need to hear the voice of the customer. They need to hear from all of you what needs to be created. How does that need to be created? This is not something new. C-DISC, HL7, and ISO developed the bridge standard I don't know how many years ago. Many, many years ago. And, um, and so this is just taking that bridge standard and making it into Fire. And then working with C-DISC. What's really interesting is these standards organizations don't work separately. They work together. Bridge is the perfect example. HL7 and CDISC meet on a regular basis. Next week is the HL7 um, work group, and CDISC will be there working with us to try and find out these solutions. So I think if we tackle these three areas, we really will be able to move data across. Now, if we're going to put this into production, which we've done at Duke, as I said, um, at um, using the RFD standard, we have to make sure it's scalable, and like I said, we have to have end-to-end. A lot of times you'll hear people say it's not a technology solution, um, and I think that the only way things move forward is having the right people at the table. So every single one of these organizations that are represented, they have the absolute right people to do this. Okay, I'm biased, but we'll start with Duke. Um, and they have done this before. So that's a good person. Wake Forest, you just heard from them the other day. They have Umit there, and he's done great work on adverse events from EHRs. Um, UAMS, the University of Arkansas for Medical Science has the leading world's expert in data quality for clinical research. And then we went through Transcelerate, and we not only have Pfizer that's on board, that quite obviously I think has the best team ever because I just joined. But also UCB's on board with Trisha Simpson who's been doing this for years and years and years and working in this area. We're encouraging uh, our vendor or the sites vendors, Epic, to participate and they have participated in the past when Duke did this and it just so happens these are all three Epic sites. We obviously need somebody to work with because we need to test this right to make sure it works. So we have uh, an EDC vendor, Open Clinica, And this is probably the most exciting part for me, because I'm always thinking, how do we know it worked? How do we know we just didn't make a change for a change? How do we know we made a change for the better? And so because the FDA's involvement in this project, they said, oh, we'll audit you. And I thought, oh, it's going to be interesting with ISO and IRB, but it's a great idea, so let's do it. So we've identified um, some ideas around how we're going to do this, and they're going to come in... And on a mock trial, on mock patient data, keep going with mock, um, they're actually gonna audit the process and let us know feedback, how we are with the process and whether or not we're compliant and then help us work through getting this to compliance. Rob said that we're looking for a solution not just for one individual, but we're looking for a solution across that can be shared with everybody. This project was started with something called CTSA funding. It's a funding from the federal government that they give to academic sites to share research between each other. So because this project was started with CTSA funding, it is a commitment at these sites that this be shared across the groups. There's no interest in a financial gain from this. This is academia. They're looking to be the ones who created the solution. And then sharing it with all of their other CTSA sites and then all sites in general and I think that's what excites me the most about this project is that we have an end-to-end solution that we're looking at we have the right parties the right perspective at the table and when we're done with this we're going to be looking to share it with everybody and to scale it to all EDC vendors to all EHR vendors so I don't work at Duke anymore so Thank you, Duke, for sharing your IP. Uh, the co-PIs were nice enough to share this video with me. Um, Eric Eisenstein and Ed Hammond are the co-PIs for this project that we're collaborating with them on. This is not real data, just so you know. Um, I think her name's April Showers is a, a joke. Uh, and this is not... Um, this is, but this is a, a fake... Epic instance so that you can see an idea. Can you just rewind that real quick for me one second? Okay, so how many people have worked in Epic before? Okay, for you, I'm going to bore you. For the rest (laughs) of you, I'm going to give you a quick tutorial so it kind of makes sense to you. The part across the top is the patient header. The part along the right-hand side is called um, activities. And you'll notice that there's multiple activities there, one of which is in the research study. They came in, they found a patient who was enrolled appropriately in the study. All necessary IRB completion was done. And they clicked on that button, and it brought in a form. This happens to be a form from uh, a product that we use quite extensively uh, for PI-initiated studies. Um, And then that form was auto-populated with the data. This is a video, so we're going slower than in real time because we need to video it. There's sometimes when the cardinality is not one-to-one. What does that mean? When there's not one answer to one question, right? So you typically have one birthday uh, to one person. But sometimes there's multiple vital signs. I could be doing them Q15, Um, they'll be multiple. And at that time we do feel like at this point we do need to have a human intervention where we're selecting them. But it's really that simple. There they clicked it. Data came across that was a cardinality of one-to-one. We're going to edit the observation of vital signs under the patient resource, select which ones we want. You can also do all across if your IRB approved that. Save the changes, and that was it. That's the data across. So final thought. Um, Chuck Jaffe came uh, the week before I left Duke, and he's the president of uh, HL7, and he was giving a presentation on fire and where it was at and where it needed to go and all of those things. Now, I hadn't told him about the project, even though his mentor and my mentor are the same, Ed Hammond, um, until just before he did his presentation. And uh, he was delighted, absolutely delighted, to hear about this uh, collaboration between all the stakeholders. And he said, wait until you see my presentation, Amy. Well, I'm excited anyway, but Okay. okay. And he talked about all the groups that are working on fire right now. There's this great group called DaVinci, and they're all of the payers, and they're working together to make sure that fire is working out well for them. And there's a really great group called Argonaut. My goodness, look what they've done already. They have 15 resources already available in most EHR vendors. Great work. But we're missing a group from the research to drive this. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some consulting groups in the FDA that have done amazing work I can tell you all about it another day. But we need this group around this. And so I'm going to leave you with this final thought that he used in his final slide. And it's every great scientific truth goes through three stages. First, people say it conflicts with the Bible. Next, they said, oh, it's been discovered before. And lastly, they say, I always believed it. So I guess I'll ask you the question, where are you at? in these stages.
0: We hope you enjoyed the podcast from D-Farm 2018. D-Farm 2019 takes place September 17th and 18th in Boston with a full day dedicated to mobile and R&D on September 16th. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.